Section 5 of the Critique of Pure Reason. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Carl Manchester, 2007. The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. Transcendental Doctrine of Elements. Part 1st. Transcendental Aesthetic. Section 2 of time. 5. Metaphysical exposition of this conception. 1. Time is not an empirical conception, for neither coexistence nor succession would be perceived by us if the representation of time did not exist as a foundation a priori. Without this presupposition we could not represent to ourselves that things exist together at one and the same time or at different times, that is, contemporaneously or in succession. 2. Time is a necessary representation, lying at the foundation of all our intuitions. With regard to phenomena in general, we cannot think away time from them, and represent them to ourselves as out of and unconnected with time, but we can quite well represent to ourselves time void of phenomena. Time is therefore given a priori. In it alone is all reality of phenomena possible. These may all be annihilated in thought, but time itself, as the universal condition of their possibility, cannot be so annulled. 3. On this necessity a priori is also founded the possibility of apodiectic principles of the relations of time, or axioms of time in general, such as, time has only one dimension, Different times are not coexistent but successive, as different spaces are not successive but coexistent. These principles cannot be derived from experience, for it would give neither strict universality nor apodiectic certainty. We should only be able to say, so common experience teaches us, but not, it must be so. They are valid rules through which, in general, experience is possible and they instruct us respecting experience, and not by means of it. 4. Time is not a discursive, or as it is called, general conception, but a pure form of the sensuous intuition. Different times are merely parts of one and the same time, but the representation which can only be given by a single object is an intuition. Besides, the proposition that different times cannot be coexistent could not be derived from a general conception, for this proposition is synthetical, and therefore cannot spring out of conceptions alone. It is therefore contained immediately in the intuition and representation of time. 5. The infinity of time signifies nothing more than that every determined quantity of time is possible only through limitations of one time lying at the foundation. Consequently, the original representation, time, must be given as unlimited. But as the determinate representation of the parts of time and of every quantity of an object can only be obtained by limitation, the complete representation of time must not be furnished by means of conceptions. For these contain only partial representations. Conceptions, on the contrary, must have immediate intuition for their basis. 6. Transcendental Exposition of the Conception of Time I may here refer to what is said above, where, for sake of brevity, 
I have placed under the head of metaphysical exposition that which is properly transcendental. Here I shall add that the conception of change, and with it the conception of motion as change of place, is possible only through and in the representation of time. That if this representation were not an intuition, internal, a priori, no conception of whatever kind could render comprehensible the possibility of change, in other words, of a conjunction of contradictorily opposed predicates in one and the same object, for example, the presence of a thing in a place and the non-presence of the same thing in the same place. It is only in time that it is possible to meet with two contradictorily opposed determinations in one thing, that is, after each other. Thus our conception of time explains the possibility of so much synthetical knowledge a priori as is exhibited in the general doctrine of motion, which is not a little fruitful. 7. Conclusions from the above conceptions a. Time is not something which subsists of itself, or which inheres in a thing as an objective determination, and therefore remains, when abstraction is made, of the subjective conditions of the intuition of things. For in the former case, it would be something real, yet without presenting to any power of perception any real object. In the latter case, as an order of determination inherent in things themselves, it could not be antecedent to things, as their condition, nor discerned or intuited by means of synthetical propositions a priori. But all this is quite possible when we regard time as merely the subjective condition under which all our intuitions take place. For in that case, this form of the inward intuition can be represented prior to the objects, and consequently a priori. b. Time is nothing else than the form of the internal sense, that is, of the intuitions of self and of our internal state. For time cannot be any determination of outward phenomena. It has to do neither with shape nor position. On the contrary, it determines the relation of representations in our internal state. And precisely because this internal intuition presents to us no shape or form, we endeavour to supply this want by analogies and represent the course of time by a line progressing to infinity, the content of which constitutes a series which is only of one dimension, and we conclude from the properties of this line as to all the properties of time, with the single exception that the parts of the line are coexistent, whilst those of time are successive. From this it is clear also that the representation of time is itself an intuition, because all its relations can be expressed in an external intuition. c. Time is the formal condition a priori of all phenomena whatsoever. Space, as the pure form of external intuition, is limited as a condition a priori to external phenomena alone. On the other hand, because all representations, whether they have or have not external things for their objects, still in themselves as determinations of the mind, belong to our internal state. And because this internal state is subject to the formal condition of the internal intuition, that is, to time, time is a condition a priori of all phenomena whatsoever, the immediate condition of all internal, and thereby the immediate condition of all external phenomena. If I can say a priori, all outward phenomena are in space, and determined a priori according to the relations of space, 
I can also, from the principle of the internal sense, affirm universally, all phenomena in general, that is, all objects of the senses, are in time, and stand necessarily in relations of time. If we abstract our internal intuition of ourselves, and all external intuitions, possible only by virtue of this internal intuition, and presented to us by our faculty of representation, and consequently take objects as they are in themselves, then time is nothing. It is only of objective validity in regard to phenomena, because these are things which we regard as objects of our senses. It no longer objective, we make abstraction of the sensuousness of our intuition, in other words, of that mode of representation which is peculiar to us, and speak of things in general. Time is therefore merely a subjective condition of our human intuition, which is always sensuous, that is, so far as we are affected by objects, and in itself, independently of the mind or subject, is nothing. Nevertheless, in respect of all phenomena, consequently of all things which come within the sphere of our experience, it is necessarily objective. We cannot say all things are in time, because in this conception of things in general, we abstract and make no mention of any sort of intuition of things. But this is the proper condition under which time belongs to our representation of objects. If we add the condition to the conception and say, all things as phenomena, that is, objects of sensuous intuition, are in time, then the proposition has its sound objective validity and universality a priori. What we have now set forth teaches, therefore, the empirical reality of time, that is, its objective validity in reference to all objects which can ever be presented to our senses. And as our intuition is always sensuous, no object ever can be presented to us in experience which does not come under the conditions of time. On the other hand, we deny to time all claim to absolute reality, that is, we deny that it, without having regard to the form of our sensuous intuition, absolutely inheres in things as a condition or property. Such properties as belong to objects as things in themselves never can be presented to us through the medium of the senses. Herein consists, therefore, the transcendental ideality of time, according to which, if we abstract the subjective conditions of sensuous intuition, it is nothing, and cannot be reckoned as subsisting or inhering in objects as things in themselves, independently of its relation to our intuition. This ideality, like that of space, is not to be proved or illuminated by fallacious analogies with sensations, for this reason, that in such arguments or illustrations we make the presupposition that the phenomenon in which such and such predicates inhere has objective reality, while in this case we can only find such an objective reality as is itself empirical, that is, regards the object as a mere phenomenon. In reference to this subject, see the remark in section 1, subsection 4. 8. Elucidation Against this theory, which grants empirical reality to time, but denies it to absolute and transcendental reality, I have heard from intelligent men an objection so unanimously urged that I conclude that it must naturally present itself to every reader to whom these considerations are novel. It runs thus. Changes are real. This the continual change in our own representations demonstrates, 
even though the existence of all external phenomena, together with their changes, is denied. Now, changes are only possible in time, and therefore time must be something real. But there is no difficulty in answering this. I grant the whole argument. Time, no doubt, is something real, that is, it is the real form of our internal intuition. It therefore has subjective reality in reference to our internal experience, that is, I have, really, the representation of time and of my determinations therein. Time, therefore, is not to be regarded as an object, but as the mode of representation of myself as an object. But if I could intuit myself, or be intuited by another thing, without this condition of sensibility, then those very determinations which we now represent to ourselves as changes would present to us a knowledge in which the representations of time, and consequently of change, would not appear. The empirical reality of time, therefore, remains as the condition of all our experience, but absolute reality, according to what has been said above, cannot be granted it. Time is nothing but the form of our internal intuition. Footnote. I can indeed say, my representations follow one another, or are successive, but this means only that we are conscious of them as in a succession, that is, according to the form of the internal sense. Time, therefore, is not a thing in itself, nor is it any objective determination pertaining to, or inherent in things. End footnote. If we take away from it the special condition of our sensibility, the conception of time also vanishes, and it inheres not in the objects themselves, but solely in the subject, or mind, which intuits them. But the reason why this objection is so unanimously brought against our doctrine of time, and that too by disputants who cannot start any intelligible arguments against the doctrine of the ideality of space, is this, they have no hope of demonstrating apodiectically the absolute reality of space, because the doctrine of idealism is against them, according to which the reality of external objects is not capable of any strict proof. On the other hand, the reality of the object of our internal sense, that is, myself and my internal state, is clear immediately through consciousness. The former, external objects in space, might be a mere delusion, but the latter, the object of my internal perception, is undeniably real. They do not, however, reflect that both, without question of their reality as representations, belong only to the genus phenomenon, which has always two aspects, the one, the object considered as a thing in itself, without regard to the mode of intuiting it, and the nature of which remains for this very reason problematical, the other, the form of our intuition of the object, which must be sought not in the object as a thing in itself, but in the subject to which it appears, which form of intuition nevertheless belongs really and necessarily to the phenomenal object. Time and space are, therefore, two sources of knowledge, from which, a priori, various synthetical cognitions can be drawn. Of this we find a striking example in the cognitions of space and its relations, which form the foundation of pure mathematics. They are the two pure forms of all intuitions, and thereby make synthetical propositions a priori possible. But these sources of knowledge, being merely conditions of our sensibility, do therefore, and as such, strictly determine their own range and purpose, 
in that they do not and cannot present objects as things in themselves, but are applicable to them solely in so far as they are considered as sensuous phenomena. The sphere of phenomena is the only sphere of their validity, and if we venture out of this, no further objective use can be made of them. For the rest, this formal reality of time and space leaves the validity of our empirical knowledge unshaken, for our certainty in that respect is equally firm, whether these forms necessarily inhere in the things themselves, or only in our intuition of them. On the other hand, those who maintain the absolute reality of time and space, whether as essentially subsisting, or only inhering, as modifications in things, must find themselves at utter variance with the principles of experience itself. For, if they decide for the first view, and make space and time into substances, this being the side taken by mathematical natural philosophers, they must admit two self-subsisting non-entities, infinite and eternal, which exist, yet without there being anything real, for the purpose of containing in themselves everything that is real. If they adopt the second view of inherence, which is preferred by some metaphysical natural philosophers, and regard space and time as relations, contiguity in space or succession in time, abstracted from experience, though represented confusedly in this state of separation, they find themselves in that case necessitated to deny the validity of mathematical doctrines a priori in reference to real things, for example, in space at all events their apodeictic certainty, for such certainty cannot be found in an a posteriori proposition, and the conceptions a priori of space and time are, according to this opinion, mere creations of the imagination, having their source really in experience, inasmuch as, out of relations abstracted from experience, imagination has made up something which contains, indeed, general statements of these relations, yet of which no application can be made, without the restrictions attached thereto by nature. The former of these parties gains this advantage, that they keep the sphere of phenomena free for mathematical science. On the other hand, these very conditions, space and time, embarrass them greatly, when the understanding endeavours to pass the limits of that sphere. The latter has indeed this advantage, that the representations of space and time do not come in their way when they wish to judge of objects not as phenomena, but merely in their relation to the understanding. Devoid, however, of a true and objectively valid a priori intuition, they can neither furnish any basis for the possibility of mathematical cognitions a priori, nor bring the propositions of experience into necessary accordance with those of mathematics. In our theory of the true nature of these two original forms of the sensibility, both difficulties are surmounted. In conclusion, that transcendental aesthetic cannot contain any more than these two elements, space and time, is sufficiently obvious from the fact that all other conceptions appertaining to sensibility, even that of motion, which unites in itself both elements, presuppose something empirical. Motion, for example, presupposes the perception of something movable, but space considered in itself contains nothing movable, Consequently, motion must be something which is found in space only through experience, in other words, an empirical datum. In like manner, transcendental aesthetic cannot number the conception of change among its data a priori, for time itself does not change, 
but only something which is in time. To acquire the conception of change, therefore, the perception of some existing object and the succession of its determinants, in one word experience, is necessary. 9. General Remarks on Transcendental Aesthetic 1. In order to prevent any misunderstanding, it will be requisite, in the first place, to recapitulate as clearly as possible what our opinion is with respect to the fundamental nature of our sensuous cognition in general. We have intended, then, to say that all our intuition is nothing but the representation of phenomena, that the things which we intuit are not in themselves the same as our representations of them in intuition, nor are their relations in themselves so constituted as they appear to us, and that if we take away the subject, or even only the subjective constitution of our senses in general, then not only the nature and relations of objects in space and time, but even space and time themselves disappear, and that these, as phenomena, cannot exist in themselves, but only in us. What may be the nature of objects considered as things in themselves, and without reference to the receptivity of our sensibility, is quite unknown to us. We know nothing more than our mode of perceiving them, which is peculiar to us, and which, though not of necessity pertaining to every animated being, is so to the whole human race. With this alone we have to do. Space and time are the pure forms thereof, sensation the matter. The former alone we can cognize a priori, that is, antecedent to all actual perception, and for this reason such cognition is called pure intuition. The latter is that in our cognition which is called cognition a posteriori, that is, empirical intuition. The former appertain absolutely and necessarily to our sensibility, of whatsoever kind our sensations may be, the latter may be of very diversified character. Supposing that we should carry our empirical intuition even to the very highest degree of clearness, we should not thereby advance one step nearer to a knowledge of the constitution of objects as things in themselves, for we could only, at best, arrive at a complete cognition of our own mode of intuition, that is, of our sensibility, and this always under the conditions originally attaching to the subject, namely the conditions of space and time, while the question, what are objects considered as things in themselves, remains unanswerable, even after the most thorough examination of the phenomenal world. To say, then, that all our sensibility is nothing but the confused representation of things containing exclusively that which belongs to them as things in themselves, and this under an accumulation of characteristic marks and partial representations which we cannot distinguish in consciousness, is a falsification of the conception of sensibility and phenomenization, which renders our whole doctrine thereof empty and useless. The difference between a confused and a clear representation is merely logical, and has nothing to do with content. No doubt the conception of right, as employed by a sound understanding, contains all that the most subtle investigation could unfold from it, although, in the ordinary practical use of the word, we are not conscious of the manifold representations comprised in the conception. But we cannot, for this reason, assert that the ordinary conception is a sensuous one, containing a mere phenomenon, for right cannot appear as a phenomenon, but the conception of it lies in the understanding, and represents a property, the moral property, of actions, which belongs to them in themselves. On the other hand, 
the representation in intuition of a body contains nothing which could belong to an object considered as a thing in itself, but merely the phenomenon or appearance of something, and the mode in which we are affected by that appearance. And this receptivity of our faculty of cognition is called sensibility, and remains toto caelo, diametrically, different from the cognition of an object in itself, even though we should examine the content of the phenomenon to the very bottom. It must be admitted that the Leibniz-Wolfian philosophy has assigned an entirely erroneous point of view to all investigations into the nature and origin of our cognitions, inasmuch as it regards the distinction between the sensuous and the intellectual as merely logical, whereas it is plainly transcendental, and concerns not merely the clearness or obscurity, but the content and origin of both. For the faculty of sensibility not only does not present us with an indistinct and confused cognition of objects as things in themselves, but, in fact, gives us no knowledge of these at all. On the contrary, so soon as we abstract in thought our own subjective nature, the object represented, with the properties ascribed to it by sensuous intuition, entirely disappears, because it was only this subjective nature that determined the form of the object as a phenomenon. In phenomena, we commonly, indeed, distinguish that which essentially belongs to the intuition of them, and is valid for the sensuous faculty of every human being, from that which belongs to the same intuition accidentally, as valid not for the sensuous faculty in general, but for a particular state or organisation of this or that sense. Accordingly, we are accustomed to say that the former is a cognition which represents the object itself, whilst the latter presents only a particular appearance or phenomenon thereof. This distinction, however, is only empirical. If we stop here, as is usual, and do not regard the empirical intuition as itself a mere phenomenon, as we ought to do, in which nothing that can appertain to a thing in itself is to be found, our transcendental distinction is lost and we believe that we cognize objects as things in themselves, although in the whole range of the sensuous world investigate the nature of its objects as profoundly as we may, we have to do with nothing but phenomena. Thus we call the rainbow a mere appearance of phenomena in a sunny shower, and the rain the reality or thing in itself, and this is right enough if we understand the latter conception in a merely physical sense, that is, as that which in universal experience and under whatever conditions of sensuous perception is known in intuition to be so and so determined, and not otherwise. But, if we consider this empirical datum generally, and inquire, without reference to its accordance with our senses, whether there can be discovered in it, aught which represents an object as a thing in itself, the raindrops, of course, are not such, for they are, as phenomena, empirical objects. The question of the relation of the representation to the object is transcendental, and not only are the raindrops mere phenomena, but even their circular form, nay, the space itself through which they fall, is nothing in itself, but both are mere modifications or fundamental dispositions of our sensuous intuition whilst the transcendental object remains for us utterly unknown. The second important concern of our aesthetic is that it does not obtain favour merely as a plausible hypothesis, but possesses as undoubted a character of certainty as can be demanded of any theory which is to serve for an organon. 
In order fully to convince the reader of this certainty, we shall select a case which will serve to make its validity apparent, and also to illustrate what has been said in subsection 3. Suppose, then, that space and time are in themselves objective, and conditions of the possibility of objects as things in themselves. In the first place, it is evident that both presenters with very many apodiectic and synthetic propositions a priori, but especially space, and for this reason we shall prefer it for investigation at present. As the propositions of geometry are cognized synthetically a priori, and with apodiectic certainty, I inquire, whence do you obtain propositions of this kind? And on what basis does the understanding rest, in order to arrive at such absolutely necessary and universally valid truths? There is no other way than through intuitions or conceptions as such, and these are given either a priori or a posteriori. The latter, namely empirical conceptions, together with the empirical intuition on which they are founded, cannot afford any synthetical proposition, except such as is itself also empirical, that is, a proposition of experience. But an empirical proposition cannot possess the qualities of necessity and absolute universality, which, nevertheless, are the characteristics of all geometrical propositions. As to the first and only means to arrive at such cognitions, namely, through mere conceptions or intuitions a priori, it is quite clear that from it is quite clear that from mere conceptions no synthetical cognitions, but only analytical ones, can be obtained. Take, for example, the proposition two straight lines cannot enclose a space, and with these alone no figure is possible, and try to deduce from it the conception of a straight line and the number two, or take the proposition it is possible to construct a figure with three straight lines, and endeavour in like manner to deduce from it the mere conception of a straight line and the number three. All your endeavours are in vain, and you find yourself forced to have recourse to intuition as, in fact, geometry always does. You therefore give yourself an object in intuition. But of what kind is this intuition? Is it a pure a priori, or is it an empirical intuition? If the latter, then neither a universally valid, much less an apodiectic proposition, can arise from it. For experience never can give us any such proposition. You must therefore give yourself an object a priori in intuition, and upon that ground your synthetical proposition. Now if there did not exist within you a faculty of intuition a priori, if this subjective condition were not in respect to its form also the universal condition a priori under which alone the object of this external intuition is itself possible, if the object, that is the triangle, were something in itself, without any relation to you the subject, how could you affirm that that which lies necessarily in your subjective conditions in order to construct a triangle must also necessarily belong to the triangle in itself? For to your conceptions of three lines, you could not add anything new, that is the figure, which, therefore, must necessarily be found in the object, because the object is given before your cognition, and not by means of it. If, therefore, space, and time also, were not a mere form of your intuition, which contains conditions a priori, under which alone things can become external objects for you, and without which subjective conditions the objects are in themselves nothing, 
you could not construct any synthetical proposition whatsoever regarding external objects. It is therefore not merely possible or probable, but indubitably certain, that space and time as the necessary conditions of all our external and internal experience are merely subjective conditions of all our intuitions, in relation to which all objects are therefore mere phenomena, and not things in themselves, presented to us in this particular manner. And for this reason, in respect to the form of phenomena, much may be said a priori, whilst of the thing in itself, which may lie at the foundation of these phenomena, it is impossible to say anything. 2. In confirmation of this theory of the ideality of the external as well as internal sense, consequently of all objects of sense as mere phenomena, we may especially remark that all in our cognition that belongs to intuition contains nothing more than mere relations. The feelings of pain and pleasure, and the will, which are not cognitions, are accepted. The relations to wit of place in an intuition, extension, change of place, motion, and laws according to which this change is determined, moving forces. That, however, which is present in this or that place, or any operation going on or result taking place in the things themselves, with the exception of change of place, is not given to us by intuition. Now, by means of mere relations, a thing cannot be known in itself, and it may therefore be fairly concluded that, as through the external sense nothing but mere representations of relations are given to us, the said external sense in its representation can contain only the relation of the object to the subject, but not the essential nature of the object as a thing in itself. The same is the case with the internal intuition, not only because in the internal intuition the representation of the external senses constitutes the material with which the mind is occupied, but because time, in which we place, and which itself antecedes the consciousness of these representations in experience, and which, as the formal condition of the mode according to which objects are placed in the mind, lies at the foundation of them, contains relations of the successive, the coexistent, and of that which always must be coexistent with succession, the permanent. Now, that which, as representation, can antecede every exercise of thought of an object, is intuition. And when it contains nothing but relations, it is the form of the intuition which, as it presents us with no representation, except in so far as something is placed in the mind, can be nothing else than the mode in which the mind is affected by its own activity, to wit its presenting to itself representations. Consequently, the mode in which the mind is affected by itself, that is, it can be nothing but an internal sense in respect to its form. Everything that is represented through the medium of sense is so far phenomenal. Consequently, we must either refuse altogether to admit an internal sense, or the subject, which is the object of that sense, could only be represented by it as phenomenon, and not as it would judge of itself, if its intuition were pure spontaneous activity, that is, were intellectual. The difficulty here lies wholly in the question, how can the subject have an internal intuition of itself? But this difficulty is common to every theory. The consciousness of self, apperception, is the simple representation of the ego, and if by means of that representation alone all the manifold representations in the subject were spontaneously given, 
then our internal intuition would be intellectual. This consciousness in man requires an internal perception of the manifold representations which are previously given in the subject, and the manner in which these representations are given in the mind without spontaneity must, on account of this difference, the want of spontaneity, be called sensibility. If the faculty of self-consciousness is to apprehend what lies in the mind, it must all act that, and can in this way alone produce an intuition of self. But the form of this intuition, which lies in the original constitution of the mind, determines in the representation of time the manner in which the manifold representations are to combine themselves in the mind, since the subject intuits itself not as it would represent itself immediately and spontaneously, but according to the manner in which the mind is internally affected, consequently as it appears and not as it is. 3. When we say that the intuition of external objects, and also the self-intuition of the subject, represent both objects and subject in space and time, as they affect our senses, that is, as they appear, this is by no means equivalent to asserting that these objects are merely illusory appearances. For when we speak of things as phenomena, the objects, nay even the properties which we ascribe them, are looked upon as really given. Only that, in so far as this or that property depends upon the mode of intuition of the subject, in the relation of the given object to the subject, the object as phenomena is to be distinguished from the object as a thing in itself. Thus I do not say that bodies seem or appear to be external to me, or that my soul seems merely to be given in my self-consciousness, although I maintain that the properties of space and time, in conformity to which I set both as the condition of their existence, abide in my mode of intuition, and not in the objects in themselves. It would be my own fault if out of that which I should reckon as phenomenon I made mere illusory appearance. Footnote. The predicates of the phenomenon can be affixed to the object itself in relation to our sensuous faculty, for example, the red colour or the perfume to the rose. But illusory appearance never can be attributed as a predicate to an object for this very reason, that it attributes to this object in itself that which belongs to it only in relation to our sensuous faculty, or to the subject in general, e.g. the two handles which were formerly ascribed to Saturn. That which is never to be found in the object itself, but always in the relation of the object to the subject, and which moreover is inseparable from our representation of the object, we denominate phenomenon. Thus the predicates of space and time are rightly attributed to objects of the senses as such, and in this there is no illusion. On the contrary, if I ascribe redness of the rose as a thing in itself, or to Saturn his handles, or extension to all external objects, considered as things in themselves, without regarding the determinate relation of these objects to the subject, and without limiting my judgment to that relation, then, and then only, arises illusion. End footnote. But this will not happen, because of our principle of the ideality of all sensuous intuitions. On the contrary, if we ascribe objective reality to these forms of representation, it becomes impossible to avoid changing everything into mere appearance. For if we regard space and time as properties, which must be found in objects as things in themselves, as sine quibus non of the possibility of their existence, 
and reflect on the absurdities in which we then find ourselves involved, inasmuch as we are compelled to admit the existence of two infinite things, which are nevertheless not substances, nor anything really inhering in substances, nay, to admit that they are the necessary conditions of the existence of all things, and moreover that they must continue to exist, although all existing things were annihilated, we cannot blame the good Berkeley for degrading bodies to mere illusory appearances. Nay, even our own existence, which would in this case depend upon the self-existent reality of such a mere non-entity as time, would necessarily be changed with it into mere appearance, an absurdity which no one has yet been guilty of. 4. In natural theology, where we think of an object, God, which can never be an object of intuition to us, and even to himself can never be an object of sensuous intuition, we carefully avoid attributing to this intuition the conditions of space and time, and intuition all his cognition must be, and not thought, which always includes limitation. But with what right can we do this, if we make them forms of objects as things in themselves, and such, moreover, as would continue to exist as a priori conditions of the existence of things, even though the things themselves were annihilated? For as conditions of all existence in general, space and time must be conditions of the existence of the Supreme Being also. But if we do not thus make them objective forms of all things, there is no other way left than to make them subjective forms of our mode of intuition, external and internal, which is called sensuous, because it is not primitive, that is, is not such as gives in itself the existence of the object of the intuition, a mode of intuition which, so far as we can judge, can belong only to the Creator, but is dependent on the existence of the object, is possible, therefore, only on condition that the representative faculty of the subject is affected by the object. It is, moreover, not necessary that we should limit the mode of intuition in space and time to the sensuous faculty of man. It may well be that all finite thinking beings must necessarily in this respect agree with man, though as to this we cannot decide. But sensibility does not, on account of this universality, cease to be sensibility for this very reason, that it is deduced, intuitus derivativus, and not an original, intuitus originarius, consequently not an intellectual intuition, and this intuition as such, for reasons above mentioned, seems to belong solely to the supreme being, but never to a being dependent, quoad its existence, as well as its intuition, which its existence determines and limits relatively to given objects. This latter remark, however, must be taken only as an illustration, and not as any proof of the truth of our aesthetical theory. Subsection 10. Conclusion of the Transcendental Aesthetic We have now completely before us one part of the solution of the grand general problem of transcendental philosophy, namely the question, how are synthetical propositions a priori possible? That is to say, we have shown that we are in possession of pure a priori intuitions, namely space and time, in which we find, when in a judgment a priori we pass out beyond the given conception, something which is not discoverable in that conception, but is certainly found a priori in the intuition which corresponds to the conception, and can be united synthetically with it. 
but the judgments which these pure intuitions enable us to make never reach farther than to objects of the senses and are valid only for objects of possible experience. End of section 5